If you wanted to learn more about philosophy and spirituality, but felt intimidated by ancient Greek or Sanskrit, is it too embarrassing to admit that we are more than the body? Are you afraid to bring up reincarnation over coffee? Well, we love coffee and Plato, Buddhism, and Sri Ramana Maharshi. And we think these teachers and systems have some use today. This is the Beware How program, Mystic Philosophy Made Practical. I'm Bob, speaking weekly with Scott and Ryan. We're three conscious creatives and formerly closeted mystics trying to unpack the inaccessible. According to the mystics, the truth cannot be spoken, but we'll try to talk about it anyway. Hello, I'm Bob, and this is the Beware How program, speaking with Scott and Ryan. Today is Monday, May 11th, 2020, and we will be discussing the third of three categories of content um, that this project has been focused on, mindful, metaphysical, and non-dual. Um, again, I wrote so much about each one of these kind of topics, segmentations, um, so it really makes more sense to break these up into three separate episodes. Um, this is the third definition, um, you know, episode on non-dual. Um, the typical format of this show is more about personal realizations and kind of practical tips. Um, these early ones, we just have to define. Um, and the, you know, I think as we go, you guys will probably like the show more all people, the listeners and you guys, because it'll be less me just reading all the stuff that I wrote. But that said, um, definitions are important, clarifying what we're talking about. And, you know, it's kind of just a high level overview. I want to touch on cool kind of sources and topics about non-duality. And, you know, there will probably be more in-depth explorations um, as kind of future episodes. We did Mindful and Metaphysical already. Go check them out. Link is here. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I hate when people do that. Uh, it's right here. Um, okay, so non-dual is the last of these three. And it basically it means not two. So one. One only. Um, a couple of definitions here. This is just good old Wikipedia, non-dualism primarily refers to a mature state of consciousness in which the dichotomy of I-other is transcended and awareness is described as centerless and without dichotomies. Um, although this state of consciousness may seem to appear spontaneous, it usually follows prolonged preparation through ascetic or meditative contemplative practice. Um, Non-dualism, non the term comes from Advaita Vedanta, which we'll get into here, um, but descriptions of non-dual consciousness can be found within Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, and Western Christian and Neoplatonic traditions. So that's from Wikipedia, and it's kind of nice because I had, a, you know, I, I knew that, and I thought that. Um, so it was cool to kind of get the affirmation, uh, <laughs> years later from them. I wrote a similar thing, like it's mostly Advaita, but there's little seeds in other, in other traditions that wouldn't necessarily be considered non-dual, um, strictly, but there's kind of fun moments, um, you know, as we'll see here in the next a million pages of the, this agenda that I wrote. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, so yeah, so mindful material, just to kind of recap our three topics here, um, you know, physical focus, really the body um, and, and the mental state, the current state, the presence, um, whereas metaphysical concepts kind of is more about beyond the physical um, astral kind of things. And whereas the non-dual is is basically, you know, ultimately there is no physical world as we know it. Um, and that this limited view of reality is actually false and ultimately unreal. Unreal being, you know, the definition really kind of, again, from Hindu theology is is anything that changes is is not technically real in that sense. That's, that's really the Vedic definition. Um, you know, the term Maya is Sanskrit, which means um, which is not. It, it, it's the term for the illusion or kind of the world as we know it, that which is not. Um, and so, you know, we had talked a lot about last week about the issues kind of with matter in the metaphysical episode and kind of, you know, the, the atoms are mostly empty space idea that we all learn in 10th grade biology. Um, you know, there's some, there's some crossover, I think, in that, in that view. Um, Non-dualists don't give much weight to form, kind of material quote-unquote reality. Like, I don't really care what I eat very often, I've noticed. I guess this is kind of jumping into the practical. But, um, like, my wife will ask me, like, what do I want to eat? I have no preference whatsoever. Like, very rarely do I care at all um, <laughs> about what restaurant to go to or like, like, and I think that's because of years of just like reading, when you just read about how form isn't really that important and ultimately ought to be transcended over a long enough period of time, it's kind of like, it does feel like it's getting less significant to me. Um, and I just wrote here, uh, Melissa thinks I'm a Neanderthal and I think I'm a Himalayan sage. So, you know, there's different perspectives on not caring about that. Um, we also we talked about Taoism in um, in the mindful episode, and there's kind of some, you know, these these systems aren't exclusive to these three segments, um, and and Taoism is a great example. Taoism, most of it, the Lao Tzu stuff is very. Um, is very kind of mindful, secular, practical wisdom. Um, but this other guy, Chung Su, um, and there's a lot of pronunciations and there's probably some Taoist scholars that are going to think I'm a amateur, but, you know, <laughs> blessings to you guys. Sorry. Um, but, uh, but this guy, Chung Su, is kind of the second. Um, he, it's Those are the two pillars of Taoism. Lao Su, who wrote Tao Te Ching, and then Chung Su wrote all this poetry. And it's beautiful and hilarious. And Chung Su is really funny and he, absurd. Um, but he wrote this this poem is a good start of this musing from him. He said, once upon a time, I, Chung Su, dreamt I was a butterfly, fluttering here and there to all intents and purposes a butterfly. I was conscious only of my happiness as a butterfly, unaware that I was Chung Su. Soon I awakened and there I was, veritably myself again. Now I do not know whether I was then a man dreaming I was a butterfly or whether I am now a butterfly dreaming I am a man. Um, you know, Love he it. plays with great stuff like that. So, so you know, dream, I think, as far as kind of entering into the non-dual systems of thought, you know, I think it's, 
as we'll discuss today, it's it's pretty far out, I think, for a lot of people to think like, oh, it's this is an illusory world. It sure seems real. Well, you know, so do dreams. Dreams seem incredibly real when you're in them. You know, the we've all had extremely full, you know, experiences where you really have to get off the golf course and you know you have to buy the items but you can't pay for them you know it's like we've all had that experience mm-hmm. uh, scott i know was big into like lucid dreaming and stuff like that i i tried i've only i only did it a, actually successfully did it a few times but um but yes i the the topic in general uh fascinates me just like the uh dreams illusions lately the i think the modern version it's not even a version it's something of its own but like um you hear a lot of people talk about simulation theory and it's yeah. you know maybe just a s- semantics question but just the idea that um yeah that reality is an illusion and it then that there's something else behind it <laughs> i guess yeah cool no i'm glad i it's funny that simulation theory is very relevant to this conversation and it's not on my 11 page agenda so yeah it's not i don't know if it fits in all this but it's just something that from my from the stuff that i read about it it it, uh it rung that bell in my head of uh, it's just interesting to me that that's become um a popular theory among uh certain physicists lately which is just uh, interesting to me what is simulation theory i think i i have a feeling i know what it is but just a quick definition Good call, uh, Scott. Yeah, they. It's um, I you know, I assume and I was I was wondering about this myself the other day. I'm sure you know there's like a more concrete definition than what I have in my head, but um, the analogy is that you know the universe is being run by an incredibly advanced computer, and that we are part of that software. Um, you know, and and of course, the, the, you know, like I said, there's kind of a semantics thing, like they're you know, like people from the science realm are using an analogy that we all inherently understand now of because, you know, things like virtual reality are getting closer. And I mean, they're here and and they're getting so good that now we can imagine that, uh, wait, what if this all is, you know, a virtual uh, reality of of simulation? And so anyway, I, it's, I I don't know the, the details, but there are like legit mathematicians that have like put forward um, you know, like mathematical theories that that's or, or or they claim that there are things hinting that that could be a reality, and I don't know. Um, yeah, I I'll have to come back and give some more concrete details on that. But yeah, it's it apparently it's become more popular amongst uh, like certain uh, I don't know like cosmologists and physicists mm. or you know, and I I don't know yeah. if that's just because yeah. like movies like The Matrix have been around a while, you know, and so it, that that idea that seed has been planted in people's minds. But yeah, that's the you know basic notion that I'm sh- I'm sure people have heard of by now. It's just that it is you know we are in a piece of software simulation, and and it's, that can be you can stretch that as far as you want as you know as what it what is a computer or what is a a reality and how how do you define those things but anyway. sure yeah right on yeah as someone that has been familiar with the non-dualism material for a long time i kind of tend to perhaps um almost like the dark side of like being in a tradition too long is like kind of seeing it 
to be let to ladder up into your own belief and just like oh simulation theory oh that's another interesting thing that kind of very clearly makes sense like it's uh within the this ideology even though that might not necessarily be the case so i guess i i kind of have to make that mm-hmm. admi- admission um because when i first started reading about that i was like oh yeah cool that's just like what a science science fiction writer would call kind of non-dualist dream mm-hmm. illusion uh, great mm-hmm. you know moving on um, <laughs> but 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 that might not be uh, uh as objective as i as i ought to be so you know i think yeah if, if people are interested in that there's a there's a lot of material on it and um it's, yeah, basically, it's relevant to the quantum physics folks it's like basically we're living in a rick and morty episode <laughs> yeah yeah totally. it's it's yeah there's definitely it uh yeah, it's just interesting to me that it's become uh, popular in in the science realms because it's uh, it gets at that major cloud of meso- metaphysics of like what is the universe made of like and what's behind it and and that's just one of the answers that has that has bubbled up to the surface. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, it was the science scientists that have taken mushrooms a bunch, <laughs> <laughs> which I will listen to them. Um, what is even a computer you know (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah. exactly um cool um so chung su is great another kind of pre-advaitan non-advaita vedanta non-hindu is plato who's also an extremely early philosopher um you know pythagoras was earlier than socrates and plato but they're pretty foundational to um you know certainly ancient greek philosophy and western thought and um you know there's definitely debate i think about if plato was a dualist or a non-dualist which is kind of funny to me because it doesn't matter at all to me to me but maybe to other people but um yeah he had a theory of forms which kind of the dualist camp would would say is is more of a dualist hierarchical structure um, but his most famous thing, the Plato's allegory of the cave, um, is is can certainly at least have a non-dual read to it. Uh, this is kind of what it is. You guys are familiar. Um, in Plato's cave, there's a community of people living in a dark cave underground. They are bound by chains to prevent them from leaving. Fires are lit and their movements cast shadows on the cave walls. Eventually, a man breaks free of his chains and climbs up out of the cave, kind of entering or re-entering the world of daylight. Um, he sees a meadow and butterflies and the sun rays, beautiful green trees, and just ecstatic with this new understanding of existence, he heads back down into the cave to explain to his chained community, uh, you know, what he's encountered, the fact that this is a shadow hellish world and not reality. And um, not only do they not believe him, they kill him for spreading such a preposterous fiction. Um, And so, you know, there's a lot of things you could read into this. Socrates, his own teacher um, is is certainly, you know, uh, most likely the inspiration there um, in that Socrates was, uh, executed by the state by drinking hemlock for um for questioning for you the socratic method 
that is such so commonplace now um, got him killed. So, um, you know, it's mm. the kind of the philosopher king or the awakened man, so to speak. Um, you know, the spiritual teacher, it's the, the, the individual who comes into understanding of reality as it is, um, you know, does break through, um, but ultimately isn't accepted by by the community. And so there's a there's a lot, you know, about the nature of reality, but also the nature of kind of human stubbornness and closed mindedness. Um, but mm. all that said, it's a really tidy little um, piece that is is in great coherence with kind of mystical philosophy and non-dualism. Mm. I, I think the, uh, that, I don't know where this is on our topic, but that, that reminds me of the Gnostics too, with their, uh, their, yeah. their theory of the, the illusion, the illusory universe <laughs> that we reside in. Yeah, they're coming up. I definitely I want to talk about Advaita and Vedanta because it's so foundational. Yeah, that's but the centerpiece. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about Gnostics for sure. <laughs> they're mm. they're in here. So yeah, let's 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 keep it going. We'll jump into Advaita. Um, they are you know a school within Hindu philosophy, and there are lines that pertain to this dreamlike aspect of this world that date back to ancient times. Um, but it really found its stride with this guy, uh, Adi Shankara, um, who was an Indian philosopher in the early 8th century. He has a couple of great quotes that explain this as well. Um, he says, Brahman is the only truth, the world is illusion, and there is ultimately no difference between Brahman and individual self. That's pretty much non-duality in one mm -hmm. line. He says... Um, all the manifested world of things and beings are projected by imagination upon the substratum, which is the eternal, all-pervading Vishnu, whose nature is existence, intelligence, just as the different ornaments are all made out of the same gold. Hmm. Um, Hindu symbolism. <laughs> um, in, that, yeah. in that reference, just so for clarity, Vishnu... Uh, is like referring to like creation destruction like the 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 workings of the day-to-day -day universe right or no yeah yeah vishnu is the preserver god of the hindu trimurti which is um you know they have a three-pronged divinity it's um mm. very kind of pretentious comparative religious scholars would say it's not like the christian trinity like it's very <laughs> i remember being like they got three a thing and then yeah, yeah. uh but yeah, it's different <laughs> damn it even though it's three <laughs> yeah. um yeah uh brahma vishnu and shiva and that's so that's shiva's mm. the destroyer brahma's the creator and vishnu is the preserver and um gotcha. brahman with an n is kind of the transcendental being um above the trimurti um that's kind of the all in all but uh, that, that that quote might be um you know various sects within hinduism place greater importance kind of on each entity so you have you know sri ramana who i'm about to talk about is was was a shivist uh shiva devotee despite being an invited um and same with you know, all the, the Krishna is an incarnation of Vishnu. Rama is an incarnation of Vishnu. So if you're a Krishna um, devotee or the Hari Krishnas, if you might be familiar, and 
you know there's mm-hmm. a lot of different types of worship of each of these beings but like when it says like eternal all-pervading vishnu well that's just one of the vishnu sects within hinduism mm. that considers gotcha. uh, that being to be foundational cool Thank probably you. yeah it's just form anyway doesn't matter um <laughs> <laughs> uh he has this phrase too which i really like which is like kind of indicative of of sri ramana nisargadatta where he says um uh, kind of they kind of have this like like not cold that's the wrong word but it's very like almost like spartan kind of like this is the way it is like especially nisargadatta but you, you you'll see uh shankar says this give up identification with this mass of flesh as well as with what it thinks a mass both are intellectual imaginations recognize your true self as undifferentiated awareness unaffected by time past present or future and enter peace damn it you know it's like he should be he's kind of just like this is how it is give up the futility of the false come on in you know Mm -hmm. um so anyway love those I feel like when the average person hears that, it it would feel like stepping off into a big deep end. It, like it, it maybe scares you know, uh, scares the ego, right? <laughs> to to think of totally, that. it's terrifying to the to the to the identity of the separate self. Um, absolutely, uh, you know, this stuff is not for you know the conscious folks that uh, care to retain individuality which i guess is is basically all of us you know i mean it's mm-hmm. you don't you know melting into the infinite um you know it sounds nice but it sounds a little scary you know uh mm-hmm. and and you know i think yogananda is a little bit warmer um in that he he kind of explains the he was he definitely had a warmer uh presence about it to where it's like you don't necessarily lose your you know it's not like you just kind of absorb into into nothing you absorb into everything it's the opposite Mm -hmm. of what you're afraid of right Um, Mm -hmm. you're not losing anything you're getting everything right and it's a diluted thought system for us to be fearful of that and so mm-hmm. that's this, these practices um, get to that. And, you know, honestly, good segue, despite my rocky segue into Advaita <laughs> passing Scott's bringing up Gnostics, which we will get to Gnostics. That was like <laughs> I, the I'm least just, like, smooth transition I've ever course. made. Yeah, a little bit. But <laughs> I feel like it's like my thing now. And I'm like, uh <laughs> i don't know anyway. my, my thing is to disturb your things so. i really don't <laughs> want the podcast to be my pontificating but these these <laughs> definition episodes um disclaimer people there are better episodes coming <laughs> and that we've recorded previously that are less uh me just rambling endlessly um but so anyway that actually is a good segue into you know incremental evolution of consciousness for years which is what most of us mortals have to endure um there are people like this guy bhagavan sri ramana maharshi um 
he was he had this instantaneous veil breaking um he was a liberated being who experienced his sudden liberation um at the age of 16 which remained throughout his life um basically what happened was in 1896 um a sudden fear of death befell him it was a it was a mortality fear and he was struck by a flash of excitement or heat, a current or force that seemed to possess him while his body became rigid. And so he kind of almost went into a death process mentally and initiated a process of self-inquiry, asking himself, what is it that dies? He concluded that the body dies, but that this current or force remains alive and recognized this current or force as his self capital S, which he later identified with the personal God. Um, and so he, he was just fascinating. He kind of turned on and just light bulb his entire life. Um, he said, quote, inquiring within, who is the seer? I saw the seer disappear, leaving that alone, which stands forever. No thought arose to say I saw, how then could the thought arise to say I did not see? So, I mean, very, like, hmm. um, you know, mystic, basically as mm -hmm. mystical as it gets when it comes to kind of observer. The observer actually kind of dissipated for him, and he just, he it just is. Um, his primary teaching was silence, merely being in the presence of him would, would, would transmit this energy. Uh, that was kind of what the devotees would talk about this feeling around him, but for everyone else that kind of couldn't get his primary teaching of silence, he prescribed self inquiry, which is a process of deductive analysis of one's true identity. And so Sri Ramana and Advaita definitely just want to touch on. I want to cover it more thoroughly in the future and we can kind of get real heady with it, but um, kind of just want to keep keep going too much, but jump in if you guys have something to say there. Yeah, what was that uh that documentary that you shared about him? Yeah, I'm obsessed with Yanni, J N A I. Yes, Wait, yeah. J N A N I. Yeah. Yeah, J A N I. Yeah. It just um, means like wisdom, man of wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, I remember watching that. It's a really great documentary. It's on YouTube for free, right? Totally free. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Everyone should definitely check that out if you want to learn more about him. Um, that death though, that 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 like moment when he was sixteen, wasn't that like the death of like his uncle or something like that? Um, his father. Yeah, he oh, was in his uncle's basement oh, okay. when that happened. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, his his early life is fascinating too because he. It, because it never left um being a teenager like school like he just it didn't work out like he left home a few years later mm -hmm. and he just walked to this mountain um called Ar Ar arunachala and just lived there his entire life for like the next i think four decades um at this mountain like a hundred two hundred miles away from his hometown he just like got a call to walk to this thing, kind of became a sadhu, a wandering swami in that state. Um, and then slowly over time, we talked about this in a previous one, but a, a, an ashram basically built up around him kind of thing. Right, right. People will just start kind of after about a decade, begin 
like pilgrimaging to him and um he's great i mean he's he is one of the best um authorities on this stuff um you know not even just recently of all time he says one of my favorite quotes is he says let what comes come let what goes go find out what remains so, yeah yeah he he's one of the best um self-inquiry too we can definitely um you know explore more now or later but he says uh his his official biographer arthur osborne said you know kind of when asking about the practical side of this lofty philosophy arthur osborne says um you know two things one of two things will happen you either get really peaceful and quiet or you get enlightened <laughs> so <laughs> It's a pretty good method. Sounds like a win-win. It's a win-win. <laughs> totally. So, love these guys. Love Sri Ramana. Um, this this other guy, Nisargadatta, is a couple decades later. He got famous in the 70s, uh, early 80s, and died around that time. He is pretty much the second best-known Advaita Hindu teacher from the last century. Um you know, even though they weren't necessarily related, Nisargadatta had a different guru and Sri Ramana didn't have a guru. Um, they often are grouped together kind of as a, as a first and second. Um, but, but Nisargadatta is, um, is great. He, he really is this kind of matter of fact teacher. He's almost like angry. I mean, it's, it's almost <laughs> like he's like frustrated with people for not getting it. Um, he mm -hmm. sold tobacco. He, so he's, he was constantly just rolling and smoking cigarettes, his, like constantly. And um, like Sri Ramana was his own personality, but Nisargadatta was like a Tarantino character. Like he's just like, <laughs> he's just this fascinating um, guy who's like chastising people. Um, he says like most of his dialogue, the famous book on his philosophy is called I Am That. Um, and he a lot of it is in the terms of like a questioner and then his answers also same with Sri Ramana. It's kind of, you know, they don't really like make big pronouncements. They're not like, you know, Southern preachers. They don't, they, if someone asks them a question, they answer it. And sometimes they even answer it with a question. You know, it's just, it's, <laughs> this, it's a different way of looking at things. It sounds very Socratic. Totally. Yeah. Right. <laughs> There's a theme here. Um, the questioner says, we were told about karma and reincarnation, evolution and yoga, masters and disciples. What are we to do with all this knowledge? Nisargadatta says, leave it all behind you. Forget it. Go forth unburdened with ideas and beliefs. Abandon all verbal structures, all relative truth, all tangible objectives. The absolute can be reached by absolute devotion only. Don't be half-hearted questioner says i must wow. begin with some absolute truth is there any he says yes there is the feeling i am begin with that this <laughs> 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 is very like and now get out of here kind of thing. yeah 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 so love love mm. those guys he's he also nisargadatta has one of my favorite quotes ever of all time which to me sums up non-duality and practical living he says wisdom is knowing i am nothing Love is knowing I am everything. And between the two, my life moves. No, oh, I love that. Hmm. So cool. Yeah. That's great. 
So that's those guys. You know, I think, again, we should definitely do an Advaita-focused one in a, in a few episodes. Cause it's Add it to the whiteboard. So rich. Yeah, I got to. <laughs> I got a Google Doc keeps growing. Um but uh you know, there's just there's a lot more to non-duality even than than them. And you know, coming back to the Gnostics, I think the Gnostic Christians too influenced Scott and I growing up. Um and um as we discuss in the Easter episode, check it out. Uh, <laughs> I hate this uh aspect of it. <laughs> You need, Link you here. Need the DJ sound. I really for need when you when you say that. <laughs> yeah. you need the DJ sound. Yeah. Bam, bam, bam. <laughs> Check it out. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's right here. Scrolling, <laughs> <laughs> scrolling animation. Easter episode. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so the Gnostics—they're great. They were also um, very interested in the same kind of idea. Of, of seeking the real, you know, capital R, real beyond the unreal. Um, they were an early group of, of Jews. They were, you know, they were Christians, but actually even kind of pre-Christian. Um, alongside Jesus, there were Gnostics uh, going around. And, um, you know, basically they, they ended up competing with the more Orthodox Christians in those early centuries that's what the uh, Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the uh, Gospel of Truth by Valentinius, um, those were all Gnostics, and they were stamped out by the mainstream Christians, by Irenaeus, by Athanasius. Um, a bunch of rude Christian fathers didn't think they were that great. And, um, you know, basically, yeah, their belief was they, they that this world... Um, and there was actually a few different kinds. There, there was a few mm. groups. So just to, to I don't want to offend Gnostic scholars here. There was a couple of variations <laughs> on the Gnostics, but um, you know what you could say is they did believe that there was a false creator god that created this world, um, kind of underneath a higher, fuller, loving god. Um, Marcion was an early Gnostic who put together actually the first canon. He inspired. His canon inspired the eventual Christian canon. When he put his out, the Orthodox Christians were like, whoa, that's a good idea. We need to mm. also kind of root out the, non, the non-righteous the texts and pick the good ones. And um, So, yeah, so a Gnostic actually put the first canon together. Um, but his idea that I just really love is that the God of the Old Testament was was this jealous, unloving, angry, warlike god um, who was a completely separate, lesser entity than the loving, merciful, peaceful father um, described by Jesus and the New Testament, that they were actually distinct beings, distinct entities, um, which, you know, I mean... That definitely that. shocked me in high school <laughs> when I read that. Yeah, <laughs> I was... I and it 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 uh it intrigued me because I had been confused in reading some Old Testament uh sections, you know, of like yeah. I don't know, God sending uh some bears out to kill some kids because they were like, you know, mean <laughs> That's to a the guy. Best one. You know, just like stories like that that I was just like, what how do I square that with this um, you know, this like 
uh, eternal love described by <laughs> the by love Jesus. Fa- so falls like I, the rain on the just that, and the unjust yeah 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 so when i read that the those uh read about those those gnostic concepts and that and that there was this this veil of illusion that was being controlled by this you know seemingly dark and twisted power i just it, it resonated on some level with me that i was like okay i'm gonna read more about this so yeah, there's a whole um, kind of discipline of Christian theology called apologism or Christ- Christian apologists um, that try to um, make that very argument, you know, to say why exactly the Old Testament perfectly bleeds into the New Testament and it's the prophecies mm-hmm. of, of uh, uh, Isaiah and and, you know, the, the ancient Jewish prophets predicted exactly Jesus perfectly because of this verse and this verse. And, and they're very good at um, answering those very questions that you had as a youth. So mm-hmm. um, I don't know why I'm kind of going against this entire point of the Marcion piece. But um, but that does exist. There are There are scholars that kind of talk about the how they are in conjunction with one another. Um, but I agree with you and Marcion, Scott, which is, you know, it's quite a jump. And the Gnostics were cool. They were really interesting because they, this is um, something that I didn't know until recently, they would actually rotate who led the congregation at every gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no central priest leader. That's cool. Right? And they allowed women to be the leader too, right? Yes, yeah, which actually even early Christian Orthodox house churches um, kind of became established in uh, houses of kind of widows, rich widows, um, ironically. So even the Orthodox Christians were accepting women, but certainly mm-hmm. the Gnostics. And, you know, if you think about why would the Gnostic ins- institution, you know, why would the institutional Orthodoxy kind of stamp out the Gnostics? Well, they're, they're, they were too mystical for structural hierarchies you know the you know Irenaeus and those guys were were more you know organizational and so they lasted they did a pretty good job of of uh, <laughs> existing but the Gnostics were kind of not that concerned with form so they didn't make it um, but yeah pretty interesting uh, interesting group and um there's there's an there's an amazing book that I'm about to talk about called Love Does Not Condemn, which is um, a Dr. Ken Wapnick book, contextualizing Platonism, Gnosticism, Christianity, and the Course in Miracles, and looking at the non-dual kind of uh, historical succession of um, by written by a guy named Dr. Ken Wapnick, who was the editor. Of a course in miracles, and a course in miracles, it, you can't talk about non-duality nowadays, especially not with me, um, <laughs> and without talking about a course in miracles, which is um, a channel document that was published in the 1970s, and um, you know, for me personally, it was in- introduced by by a holy man, my, Richard the Apache Shaman, our family friend, um, told me that a that a course in miracles is the real deal. Um, you know, and it's not for everyone. It's, but it is very beautiful, and it's written in iambic pentameter, which is Shakespearean blank verse. It's very poetic. Um, 
It's about 1,600 pages. There's a text, there's a workbook, there's a teacher's uh, manual. And uh, yeah, it basically, you guys know about it, but for the listeners, if you're not familiar, channeled meaning um, a woman heard an intuitive voice and started writing it down. And it was for six years. She wrote down this um, information that she received. Uh, her name was Helen Shuckman. She was an atheistic psychologist in New York City. She was a very good psychologist. And she was working in difficult conditions um, in a clinic rife with aggressive, confrontational attitudes. And her boss was uh, another psychologist, psychotherapist named Bill Thetford, who had um, interned under um, Carl Rogers. So Bill Thetford was a, a famous uh, psychotherapist. And um, her and Bill were just constantly kind of infighting. And uh, one day Bill said to her, there has to be a better way. Kind of to live and to operate in this environment. And Helen, despite them being combative usually, said, you're right, and I'll help you find it. And that kind of decision that they both had together um, is, is the explanation for this kind of human betterment decision um, brought about a series of symbolic dreams that heaven, Helen had and even kind of waking images that came to her. And then she started hearing this voice um, and started writing this down and Bill helped her along with along, uh, throughout the process. Um, and it was very surprising to her. I mean, we don't, we'll, we'll, we'll probably do one on a course, um, because yeah. it's a big document for me, but, um, but it's, it's fascinating. And, um, you know, there's no church, it's a self-study curriculum. It's a psychotherapy curriculum. Um, but it uses, kind of Christian words and themes, but it is more kind of Gnostic in that it is non-dual. It is very kind of world denouncing and um, no church, no institution, no scheme, you know, to get your money. There is a publisher because it's the 20th century and 21st century. We have, we have to <laughs> do those things, but it's not a cult. There's not even, you know, it's not even a religion. Um, and the whole point of it is to help us quote, remove the blocks to the awareness of love's presence is how it describes what it's doing. And so, you know, it certainly is non-dual in that it's a, it's a remembering, it's an undoing. Um, from a theological perspective, it says, uh, quote, the, the opening line is, nothing real can be threatened, nothing unreal exists. A couple more. Um, it says, one brother is all brothers. Every mind contains all minds for every mind is one. And then this is one of my favorites. It says, can you imagine what it means to have no cares, no worries, no anxieties, but merely to be perfectly calm and quiet all the time? Yet that is what time is for, to learn just that and nothing more. Kind of a Shakespearean rhyming scheme there. Um, so, course is great. And, you know, to, to shout out Dr. Ken Wapnick's work, um, he was the one of the early editors. He helped them put it together. He was a um, professor in uh, I think NYU. They they were New England, uh, New York City based, and they all kind of moved out to California when they published the course. But he wrote this fantastic book again called "Love Does Not Condemn," and um, it's very slept on. I was just checking it out on Amazon today. I've, I've, I've owned it for a couple of years. Um, there's eleven reviews on it. <laughs> on Amazon and it's like this masterpiece where I'll just show you guys 
it is this masterpiece of um, um, the world, the flesh, and the devil, according to Platonism, Christianity, Gnosticism, and of course in miracles. It's like wow. scholarly. It's extremely well cited. Um, you know, big time shout out to that book. It's it's a it's a great scholarly ex explanation for non-duality its development over time he goes into the different kind of gnostic schools and doesn't really touch on advaita too much um so this is kind of the western take on non-dual schools of thought but um anyway it's really great i don't know if um you'd plan to touch on gary renard at all but for those interested in you know a course in miracles and non-duality that's maybe a little bit more accessible than uh a scholarly book yeah that's what i was gonna say the disappearance of the universe is a really really great place to start yeah no let's talk about it that's a great that's a great segue too i mean it, um there's there's a few ways in to a course um and i was going to mention too marianne i mean a lot of people yeah. um mm -hmm. maybe had heard of marianne williamson but she certainly got well known uh running for president last year which the course community was also called ACIM. The ACIM community was um, pretty split on uh, because it's a non-dual community. So some people, you know, on Facebook groups and stuff were like, we're like, oh, so great. Marianne 2020, you know, we're going to finally have a spiritual teacher in politics. And some people were like, Marianne, the world is unreal. <laughs> what are you trying to fix? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. it's, you just have to forgive your own mind and your own projections. And so that's actually kind of a nice, uh, you know, jumping off point into the practical side of this material here in a second. But, but with, yeah, definitely want to call it Gary Nard too, because Gary really popularized, of course. It was sort of, I mean, Marianne too. Marianne and uh, she wrote a Return to Love, I think in 92, which interviewed by Oprah and then like her book blew up and of course blew up. Um, and then, and then Gary Renard wrote uh, disappearance of the universe, which Richard, our shaman friend also suggested is, um, you know, kind of an authentic spiritual document where Gary was visited by two ascended masters, um, which he claimed to have appeared on his couch and started talking to him. And it wasn't angelic appearance or anything like that. They just visual, zapped in, basically. And he opened his eyes after meditating. And there they were. And they said, Gary, da da da. And they started talking. And that's the book, is this, these conversations he has. And to Ryan's point, it, it's definitely more accessible, I think, than some of the, the denser scholarly. So it's kind of like, you know, maybe go Wapnick if you want the, the referenced hard scholarship but go gary if you kind of want the pop fun narrative side of it um but it's all talking. i, I like the, the I, I like the iambic pentameter myself <laughs> right yeah or you if you're a literary guy like scott just jump into a course perfect um yeah that 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 idea earlier too that we were talking about of like melting in the into the one being sounding scary or whatever um there's a line this is uh not an exact quote because i could find it but it's the ideas from a course it says it's not arrogant to think you're one with god it's arrogant to think you could be separate from god you know non-duality has these kind of flips of what our common sense or common rational 
thought, you know, tends to get how arrogant for someone to say they're one with God. And it's like, well, no, actually, mm. if you think that you could be separate from the one, you know, and kind of create your own kingdom, so to speak, um, you know, mm. that's actual arrogance. It's actually just the way it is, is that you're one with God. We just put these blocks up, basically. That also sounds like blasphemy to a, a like traditional uh, traditional Christian. Christians don't <laughs> or, like this stuff. <laughs> I was just gonna say the same thing. I've had a couple of those conversations, and they don't often go super well. Yeah. Well, and <laughs> you're so you're saying you're God. You're right. Great. That's exactly what they say. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'll worship you. And I mean, even actually, there's a line in the course that says like worshiping God is that idea is a very ego god has there's no need to worship like worshiping is like what a human would impose upon like would want god just wants your love and your you know your 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 unity with him and your realization of uh you know your connection there's no need to there are no levels basically the levels are kind of this egoistic construct and hierarchies mm. Um, so, but yeah, no, I mean, and I should say too, of course, the miracles, Helen, the voice Helen heard claimed to be from Jesus and that loses about 70% of people right there. Um, and to me, it doesn't matter, you know, if it is cool, if it, if it isn't, that's cool too. Cause it, the material itself right. is, is where it's really interesting, but, um, the voice of the of the work does clarify moments in Christian theology that were misinterpreted according to it. So, you know, the resurrection, for example, um, you know, it talks about the resurrection, kind of like we mentioned in the Easter episode, the resurrection was actually designed to ex explain or teach the idea that man is spirit. <laughs> uh, that's what it was doing and that's what it accomplished not dying for the sins of the world. Um, that was the Christian read and the um, kind of Orthodox read. And that, you know, this voice claim that claims that that was kind of a misread. That was an egoistic misread. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's not, it's not Christian, even though it's like the voice of Jesus and it uses terms like the Holy Spirit, which is essentially a, um, the Holy Spirit is basically the memory of our oneness according to a course, the memory of our true self. And it kind of helps us all internally um, guide us back to that true home, if you will. Um, it's not like this angel kind of figure, like in like a stained glass of a church or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it uses Christian terms, but and, it, and the voice of Jesus, but it is very different. And 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 frankly, I mean, to that point too, Orthodox Christians, you know, if you Google A Course in Miracles, uh, you'll you'll probably see some criticism from Christians saying it's demonic, you know, that it she, she was possessed <clears throat> when she came up with this stuff, and um, mm. you know, they said that about Hindu stuff too, and that's cool. So that was a good <laughs> advertisement for me. <laughs> The Jews said oh, that about yeah. Jesus too. So, yeah, <laughs> all the fun stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, Bill Thetford actually even. I mean, speaking of Advaita Vedanta, Bill Thetford, the co co scribe, I'd say, kind of 
it was Helen and Bill. Bill Hopster put it together. He called it the Christian Vedanta. Is what Bill called A Course in Miracles. So there's a lot of similarities mm. um, from a philosophical point of view. It definitely has a lot of non-dual, um, I mean, poetry and in, in my to my ears it, it reads like non-dual poetry of just uh, yeah. trying to undo um just these deep-seated uh notions that we have about ourselves as separate and and uh it just it, it, it's like this this uh like these waves just trying to like break apart your your conceptions of of uh of uh distinct self and and all the all the uh psychological problems that can come with that that feeling of isolation and all that totally that's exactly what it's doing uh, incrementally over time and then there's a workbook uh there's a workbook that is uh 365 lessons so you know to your point it's it's every day is the idea a year that you read the next lesson and just contemplate with it sit with it and you know, it's because, because like you said, the, the, our subconscious, you know, uh, you know, egoistic monkey mind, whatever you want to call it, that system of thought is so ingrained that it takes, it takes us about 1600 pages <laughs> to explain it away. Um, yeah. I yeah. like the little, it's a little bite-sized pieces too. I, I did enjoy the, the kind of daily little, you know, it's like a few paragraphs a day and the, and you just kind of simmer on, on these, these thoughts. So, some of them just like really, I just, as, as like a writer, I, I was just enjoying the, uh, the way the words were put together. It was just a very, I, I found myself thinking, like reflecting on them a lot. Cool. Yeah. I should say we went through the workbook, the three of us. <laughs> which is nice um yeah i mean and i think that's too getting into practical here um you know that's that's a good one the course workbook um you know sri ramana talked about self-inquiry um the transitions atma vichara it's um that's the method from the Sri Ramana Advaita school, um, trying to understand who the I is. You know, there's a couple ways to do this stuff, right? As opposed to just reading about it. And you know, I want to get into the dismissive aspects of like it's all an illusion crowd, as we as we talked. Um, but this is a good analogy for uh, the bull and the grass analogy from Sri Ramana um, is a nice practical uh, jumping off point here. Um, this is this is David Godman who is the pretty much preeminent scholar on not pretty much david i'll give it up to you it's you and michael james are the <laughs> um sri ramana uh, de facto scholars he says this um bhagavan had a very appropriate analogy for um, self-inquiry imagine that you have a bull and that you keep it in a stable if you leave the door open the bull will wander out looking for food it may find food, but a lot of the time it will get into trouble by grazing in cultivated fields. The owners of these fields will beat it with sticks and throw stones at it to chase it away, but it will come back again and again and suffer repeatedly because it doesn't understand the notion of field boundaries. It's just programmed to look for food, to eat it wherever it finds something edible. The bull is the mind, the stable is the heart, where it arises, to where it returns, and the grazing in the fields represents the mind's painful addiction to seeking pleasure in outside objects. 
Bhagavan said that most mind control techniques forcibly restrain the bull to stop it moving around, but they don't do anything about the bull's fundamental desire to wander and get itself into trouble. You can tie up the mind temporarily with japa um, or breath control, uh, the, the necklaces, uh, prayer necklace working. Um, but when these restraints are loosened, the mind just wanders off again, gets involved in more mischief and suffers again. You can tie up a bull, but it won't like it. You'll just end up with an angry, cantankerous bull that will probably be looking for a chance to commit some act of violence on you. Whereas self-inquiry is grass that you put under the bull's mouth to lead him back to the stable. And so the grass is this uh, is the method to eventually make the bull realize that the stable has the grass. It's not out in the other owner's fields. Um, you know, it's, it's the desire to leave by illustrating that um, the true home, the, tr the heart, is, is, is actually the ideal place to abide. Love that. That takes a lot of I. Uh, that the image of of trying to contain it forcibly is yeah. I feel like the standard method of of most traditional. Uh, you know the whole the whole point is uh, limit limit your desire. Like that's don't go over there. You can't have that. That's bad. Hey, don't you know, don't it, look. It just, it just yeah. Yeah, yeah, it makes the bull want it even more. <laughs> you yeah. know, it it to, um, whereas whereas self inquiry is is the process of of slowly realizing uh, that actually you just don't want those things. Not that you can't have them, but that you really just don't want them, and you don't know that yet. <laughs> right, like uh, like smoking. Even like I smoked cigarettes for ten years, and it was like once you you stop it, it's been a year and a half. What up? You stop it by just realizing nice. that you really enjoy healthy lungs. Like you're like, I just yeah. really like being able to breathe fully way better than, you know, the yeah. The ability to go off with a friend and have a solitude moment by yourself at work or whatever it is, like that's you know, those are not as good, as cool as um, not encumbering your own physical uh, mm -hmm. capacity to breathe and live. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and I think you know the Buddha isn't non-dual necessarily. I mean, I mean, there's aspects of non-duality in Zen, uh, kind of the presence focus and like the the again the stuff on like concepts and form being Zen just throws form out the window. So that's kind of true, but. But uh, in particular, the the middle way aspect of Buddhism, where he, you know, I feel like I'm I'm jumping into that episode. Damn it! But anyway, I'll just mm -hmm. mention this: he was a rich prince. Basically, he was he was a he was a spoiled kid and spoiled young man, and he had everything. And when he left the palace, famously he went to join Hindu ascetics and, um, you know, went hardcore into that. He starved himself, almost died. And he realized that neither extreme was, had the answer. Um, that it was, it was the middle way. It was just having a moderate diet and a moderate 
uh, world that it was actually mental training that, you know, cessation of desire was ultimately his path. But the focus on the world ver versus the kind of denouncement of the world in the other opposite direction, it just it just affirmed the reality of the world and didn't do it, you know, because it made form. It basically, it made form real by saying, no, 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 I can't have that. No, nope, you know, um, mm -hmm. it, it didn't it didn't do it. It didn't it didn't break out. And the Gnostics were extreme aesthetics as well. I mean, they, they were they uh, were vegetarian and uh, uh, celibates and didn't I mean, they avoided everything. They walking on the ground, a, a Gnostic sect would they'd say like you're murdering the the dirt i mean it they they were <laughs> some of them were extreme because because the world was so filthy and there was just like this um this evil to this to this existence that they were trying to avoid and you know i love a lot of this stuff from gnostics but that those those aspects of it in particular you know um level confusion is, is basically what I'm talking about here, which is, um, you know, people in, in both in the Course in Miracles community and in um, what they call like Neo-Advaita is kind of like the 90s and 2000s study of, of Advaita and like kind of like white people that practice Advaita in America is called like Neo-Advaita. <laughs> And, um, you know, those, those two communities of non-dual contemporary seekers, there, there is kind of this tendency to be dismissive of, of, you know, well, it's all just an illusion, so it's okay. And, you know, I, it, that's a misread to me. Um, Ken Wapnick of all people, the editor of course spent, you know, basically decades of his life, um, explaining that you know of course miracle students when it would first come out they would go to funerals and like wear white and bring like balloons and say like well it doesn't matter it's all an illusion it's like well you know that's <laughs> not very warm and loving and you know right. you're, you're not acknowledging <laughs> their the, the pain that these people are going through and they're not gonna you know um you you have to meet consciousness where it is i guess is the main point there about that hmm Yep, absolutely. I, uh, that gets to maybe my, one of the big questions I still wrestle with. And, um, that uh, one of the quotes you said a little while ago, I, maybe I had heard it before, but it, it really stuck with me now that I heard it again. Um, and it was the, the one of, um, what was it? Uh, wisdom is knowing you're nothing and love is knowing you're, you, that you're everything. everything. Was that? Yeah. About right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the, um, they, it's a dichotomy. It, they conflict in my mind sometimes, but if, <laughs> uh, and, and I think the initial, eventually I'll get past that when I, when I see that there is no difference between those two, but, but it's, um, trying to pull away from an illusory world while still caring deeply about the people that are in it that you love mm -hmm. and, and yeah. how do you blend those things together? Yeah, I don't know. I'm not Sri Ramana, man. Um, <laughs> no, uh, David Hoffmeister is another course teacher I really like and he has, he talks a lot about this and he says, you know, look at Jesus's own life. 
Um, you know, he was very active. He was very, you know, feeding the poor, traveling around, teaching people on the hill. I mean, he he was he was very engaged in the world of form despite being aware of its illusory nature. Um, you know, if he would have said, this is David, he says something like, if Jesus would have just, you know, appeared and said, you know, we're all one, God is one and we are one, and then disappeared, you know, he wouldn't have lasted really that well. And, you know, <laughs> a couple of farmers would have thought that they hallucinated and gone back to tilling <laughs> the field. And, you know, that's not what happened. Instead, he, he was, you know, he met people where they were. He, right. he washed the feet of the disciples to illustrate the humility. You know, even though he was the master and the teacher, he showed to them that he was no better than them. He was, he was, you know, what you do for the least of these, what you, he, you know, ego death, ego destruction. I mean, everything that he did in his life in, in the recorded gospels, um, you know, super active, super loving, super connected with people. And, um, you know, so I think it is possible. I mean, you know, the, the, there are men and women throughout history that, you know, in, in, in my view and in the mystic view, kind of break our dependence on the senses but they can still, you know, live in it. And, and there is kind of even, I think, a guidance quality to it. Like, you know, um, like the Advaitins would say, like the self, capital S, the self is kind of what determines even your activities. Like you don't even actually have any kind of, um, you know, conscious decision making at some point. You're just, mm -hmm. you're just guided even in your day to day. You get kind of intuitive prompts about how to live in the in the most uh transcendent way whereas it's the ego mind that's like i want the hamburger and the and the ice cream shake and then i want to go do this and go do that and um you know it's um i don't know i'm still i'm still being driven by the lower mm. one but it sounds <laughs> like there's a higher one that can drive you <laughs> and by yeah. by undoing you you know get those those prompts and at least that's the theory yeah mm -hmm. um uh, there's a thing about uh hierarchy too that um that always really resonates with me and in, in the way that maybe i just thinking about applying non-duality into kind of you know personal life um and that ties in humility, the idea of humility directly too. And I don't remember exactly where I read this or I, maybe it was in A Course in Miracles or something, but the idea of seeing God in all people. Um, and that's something I, I really try to apply every day. Um, and it's hard, obviously. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, like the, your, your ego is constantly wanting to, um, you know, especially if you're having a rough day, like blame other people or make other people wrong or... Um, or, or if you find a string of success, you feel, you start to feel better than other people in certain ways. And, um, I, the idea, the concept of non-duality really helps me, um, stay weighted. It's like a, it's like a weight. It's like a foundation. Keep me grounded in that, um, there is no hierarchy. We are all made of the exact same thing. We all are the exact same thing. And that immediately brings a sense of humility and, and, um, that's, uh, that's what I've really loved about the idea of, of non-duality and, um, and kind of applying it to like kind of personal, 
day-to-day interactions and with my with people in my community you know Mm. that's great yeah yeah i've i enjoy trying to do that too don't don't always or even (laughs) usually succeed but but yes um yeah i've noticed that too especially lately the more i think about these things um it does feel like a grounding thought um to be able to uh, just step back. It gives you, uh, it, it feels like you get a bird's eye view of, of your life for a, a split second. And that can be an incredible relief, especially in dark times. <laughs> yeah. And when you mentioned, you know, Jesus washing the feet, um, of his disciples, that's exactly what I think of, you know, um, kind of showing them that there is no hierarchy. Um, showing them humility humility and that's through the concept of non-duality yeah we're all one man (laughs) you know it's like Mm -hmm. we just don't know it or we know the concept of it or we're like yeah i get that but but yeah you have to really live it you know yeah like you're saying um and there's also i mean that that's actually a mystic practice i mean um like some of the saints that would like thinking of like contemplative christianity where like if they're if they're serving a meal every diner is a jesus and mary you know every diner is the, another face of christ and so they're mm-hmm. they're ladling the soup with the devotion as though they're serving their uh you know object of divinity it's same similar in hinduism too where there's kind of you know that that darn Old Testament God criticizing uh, idol worship. Well, little did he know, um, you know, uh, when when Hindus are 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 worshiping Hanuman or something, uh, Rama's friend, the monkey servant, um, you know, they see that image in all. Um, you know, Hanuman was the the servant of Rama, and that was his whole story was serving was serving Rama and serving God and. Um, and yeah, seeing you know, yeah, you're 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 hitting it out of the park with with the with seeing the all and all. I mean, I think that's a huge aspect of it. And and I think you know, if there is a limitation of of non duality, because that's kind of been the theme of these definition episodes, is like context, uh, practical limitation. I mean, I think the limitation is it it can be too kind of intellectual for people, or too heady, too misinterpreted. Um, or even too cold, you know, I've kind of heard all of these as critics and there's merit really to each of those because it isn't for everyone. I think it's everyone is on their own path. Everybody has their own preferences and, um, you know, methods that work best for where they're at, Um, you know, because um, what did I, I wrote here, you know, there's a certain irrationality to it. Um, and even even Sri Ramana would be challenged, you know, on this. Like in, in the 40s, uh, you know, some local, uh, you know, kind of Hindu scholar would go to the ashram with the intention of disproving. You know, that, that's kind of a common theme in these guru biographies. There's always some fist-shaking intellectual. And, um, you know, he, David Godman said this again on, on, on when that would happen to Ramana. He would say... Um, you know, look, there's there's not really a rational explanation for this. You, the, the process of self-inquiry is what you follow. 
And as you do it, eventually everything temporal will melt away. Mind will disappear. I will disappear. You know, the world will disappear. Um, this is just kind of what you have to do on your own to start to see it unravel, um, to borrow kind of Yogananda's scientific kind of admonition. You know, your own practice is the experiment, and you see the results for yourself. Your, your life is your laboratory. Um, so, yeah. you know, um, but, but, but again, not for everyone. I think, I think these, the segmentation hopefully is helpful for people in understanding like, you know, Hey, that secular mindful episode, that stuff really vied with me. Um, I'll pay attention to Thich Nhat Hanh more and, um, you know, the Stoics and the metaphysical, that was actually, you know, cool or whatnot and, uh, and or the non-dual there's stuff in this one as well and so um you know i think just just a grand all in conclusion here um is is kind of you know the end goal might seem different like i think mindful talks about presence and the current moment metaphysical talks about transcendence or kind of transcending the physical and then non-dual i'd say is like undoing or remembering and I think, you know, a theologian would say these are different. Those are all different end goals that you just described. To me, they're all the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a mystic, that's all very, very similar situations. They're all different ways of, of explaining um, kind of being unencumbered by our blocks, by our false self, whatever it is. So, you know, I see the similarities, but. But um, but I acknowledge <laughs> that there are semantic differences on form, and that's kind of what what these definitions were, you know, hopefully able to do. Mm. Yeah, I yeah. like the way you explained it too. Obviously. Oh, go ahead, Scott. Thanks. Yeah, no, just the themes. I the themes run through them all for me. I mean that you know obviously self discovery and and truth discovery are at the heart of these three areas, and um, the non dual maybe takes it even in a more um, like you said it's almost by definition illogical in a way where it's trying to um, it's 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 almost like a brain teaser where you you're 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 butting your head against the the wall of logic and so that you can just eventually break through and realize that it did wasn't there at all and it's all an illusion uh yeah but it's it it, it yeah i don't know what i'm saying <laughs> <laughs> yeah i don't know you've been, I don't know you've if been I can... embroiled by non-duality for an hour and 20 minutes so. yeah <laughs> i don't know if i can articulate this right but i get this like feeling what i really like about these three topics of like mindfulness <clears throat> metaphysics and non-duality is that each level you're kind of like taking a step back a little bit further it's like starting with mindfulness is kind of like you're kind of like day to day right like things that in this kind of on the level of form the how you might apply yourself uh, uh in, a, in a peaceful in a way to happiness you know peaceful happiness through mindfulness and then you take a step back um and your worldview gets a little bit bigger and you kind of yeah, you apply the idea of, you know, metaphysical uh, ideas. Um, and then you take a step further back and then the idea of non-duality. To me, they all work really well together. I know that they might, 
in some way like almost discredit each other uh in some ways but personally like i <clears throat> i see them i i think they work really well together and i i i really enjoy uh applying all three of those concepts um into you know daily practice thanks man yeah, yeah. i appreciate that mm. yeah I, I'm, I'm working on a diagram nice. a venn diagram seventh <laughs> <the> grade style <laughs> That shows the schools and shows kind of teachers and concepts in each kind of which overlap with one, two and two and three and three and yeah. one. And then who's mm -hmm. in the middle. And um, and yeah, you know, it's um, it's a spiritual buffet line. You know, Richard told me a long time ago, mm -hmm. don't get indigestion. You know, it's like it's, yeah. it's mm -hmm. there's so many tasty dishes that, um, you know, maybe I did and maybe I am just. Um, you know, having um uh, having issues over here, but um, you've been at Golden Corral for a while. Yeah, I just keep <laughs> scooping. I just get another plate. <laughs> Please get a clean plate. Golden and, Corral uh, is such a perfect. Keep going back name through. For it too. <laughs> uh, what's the chocolate fountain? <laughs> is that Sri Ramana? Um. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, maybe. That's not There's duality a lot of goods. when you finally get to the chocolate fountain. Yeah. Thich Nhat Hanh is the hot dogs. Yogananda is the lasagna. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of good stuff. Um, yeah, that's hilarious. So, you know, yeah. It, that, that This basically sums up kind of what, what this show will be about. Um, and, and again, I said this in the intro and in the intro of these, but... Um, you know, I really liked like the Easter episode and the creative episode where we did share more about like our own personal kind of realizations and anecdotes about our lives. So, you know, be ready, guys, to talk more about yourselves and your um, not that you have any <laughs> no. flaws because you're already whole and perfect as you are. <laughs> but um, but I think I think that'll be helpful for people. And, um, you know, I think to the listener, hopefully. Um, listening to me read through all this stuff uh <laughs> for the past several hours um you know just just serves as a foundation for us to kind of jump in uh further in the future absolutely yeah. hope everybody finds something something cool hopefully everybody finds their delicious plate mm -hmm. of buffet food mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs>